Hey everybody, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Here we got Ty Garrett and Rami E with Dataflick, and they flew in from Knoxville, uh, Tennessee to talk about how to use AI on your next motivated seller. I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires, and the information on this podcast alone is enough for you to become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, you'll become one. And we talk about becoming a millionaire on the show many, many times. I want to show you guys how to do it. Go to wealthevaluation.com. We actually have a six page worksheet help you give a, a financial roadmap on becoming a millionaire. We also know that running a sales team is hard work, even thankless at times. You gotta hold your people accountable to numbers they know they need to hit. This might make you feel exasperated. If you feel like you're alone, you are not. Brent and I are helping other business owners get through to their sales teams to yield record performances, even in this market. If you think this might help you, text LEADERS to 33777. And if you get value out of the show, please tag it from below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Rami and Tide Answer. And I've been talking to them for even an hour before the show. They're a wealth of information. Make sure you guys ask your questions. All right? Ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So the first question is, really, what was your life like right before? Got it. You can take the seat. Sure. So um, it all started. We were working in a wholesale operation mm -hmm. with uh, Tiffany and Josh High uh, mm -hmm. over at Hills Homes, who now own Results Driven. So we were doing that, and we started back in 2019, just on the wholesaling side, right? Yep. And we were doing everything from like flips all the way to a lot of wholesale deals, building rental portfolios, all that good stuff. I was running dispositions for them and overseeing rehabs, project management, mm -hmm. things like that. Rami was uh, working on the acquisition side. Yes. Uh, follow up quickly pushed into acquisitions. Okay. It was pretty abrupt, but it was solid. You learn a ton that way, for sure. But what attracted you guys to go work over there? Definitely. Yeah. So before we got started, so I was this is back in like 2018. So I done a ton of like educational programs, courses, things like that, and I realized pretty fast that like I couldn't really do it alone. So I was posting a ton in like different masterminds that we were a part of, like courses, things like that, and mm -hmm. in just communities in general. And so I tried to launch marketing by myself and got a little bit of traction. Like I did bandit signs and things like that and realized pretty fast that like I needed help. So I started posting in all these communities and things, you know, to ask for that help. Mm -hmm. And Tiffany and Josh actually, you know, just offered me a job and they were like, hey, do you want to come up and move from Knoxville to Columbus to kind of like break this down and like mm -hmm. learn more about it? Three months into doing that, that was when I called up Rami and I was like, Hey, you want to learn about real estate? <laughs> yeah. So for me, it was a very different story. Uh, yeah. Graduated with psychology from UT. Um, did landscaping for six months after that. So <laughs> completely unrelated. Uh, landscaping we, as in like you're the one that was trimming or you're oh, working no, at a landscaping company? Yeah. I was working for the landscaping company, but I was trimming the hedges, moving. Gotcha. Like I was the physical labor. <laughs> um, yeah, so I did that for six months, then was like, you know, I have this degree, I should try to utilize this. Started looking at grad schools, things of that nature. Um, a passing in the family actually happened, so that kind of stalled that. But from there, Ty called me and was like, hey, I know you're in limbo, this follow-up specialist role just opened up. Come on up, give it a try. So I did, and there we were. So I obviously spent a lot of time talking about sales and teaching yeah. sales, and a giant part of sales is psychology. Do you find your degree in psychology to be helpful for you in any way? Um, so it's actually very interesting. I feel like the main thing that I took from that, from just psychology all in all, is empathy, not sympathy. Mm -hmm. 
right? You never want to be like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened, but, yeah. or like, I feel what you're saying, et cetera, because you're not going to be able to mm-hmm. relate to that person that way because that's their unique experience. It's inauthentic. Exactly. So the main thing that I took from it was more of a, sounds like you went through a very hard time mm-hmm. and almost being like an extra value add to them. Right. That's probably the biggest takeaway I got that I applied to sales. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you're doing follow-up. Yes. And then you got pushed, moved into acquisitions. Yes. So <laughs> you're, so <laughs> you got, 20- yeah, you got to break that down too. Okay. So you're in 2019. <laughs> Is it 2019? Yeah. So we went to Columbus, mm-hmm. like right in the middle of 2019, a little bit early in the year. Yeah, so, yeah. so you guys are both from Knoxville. Yes. And you guys both went to Columbus. Correct. Correct. Working like, in a sales office. That we never met any of these people. <laughs> okay. I know well, it sounds crazy. But. <laughs> but how was that experience? You know, because like a lot of people, actually one of the things that I've been pushing, I actually said this on a live yesterday, last couple of days, is like the best way to get started is actually work for somebody. 100%. Because right? yeah. they say like, you know, you, you watch the YouTube videos, like stuff we record right here, right? You watch the YouTube videos, you can buy the courses, this and that. You do everything yourself, but there's a lot of challenges in like, there, there are things that you have questions and it's hard to get those answers. 100%. So what was it like? Like how, how valuable was your experience working for someone that's in the field? Very, very valuable. So one of the biggest things was right when we moved up, they had a very big team. Um, it was about a month or two after being there. At this point, I don't have a lot of money. I'm living on Ty's floor with a mattress <laughs> Tiffany actually let me borrow, right? <laughs> and he's in a 600-square-foot studio. Yeah, so, so tight. <laughs> very much just making it how we can. Um, but they restructured their whole team. Mm-hmm. So major layoffs, the remaining, like, two people on the sales and disposition are Ty and I. So that was a big just push into that two acquisition Two people left role. in sales was you. Well, so the, in the entire organization, we went from 15 to just us two overnight. Okay. And then it was like, I was heading all of the dispositions, all of our project management for like, you know, essentially exiting. And he was doing the front end on like all the acquiring. Yeah. Yes. Wow. So <laughs> it was absolute chaos and like tons and tons of hours like put in every week. But I think that was kind of like what expedited our learning curve, I would mm-hmm. say. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And they were learning as well, right? Mm-hmm. It was felt just like a big community of all of us being like, okay, we're restructuring, starting from the beginning. Mm. Let's figure it out. And I still remember the day. Um, it was during our morning sales meeting, right? We're all just talking about how we can improve, et cetera. And we get a call in. Tiffany picks it up, being the follow-up. And she's like, Rami, you're going to be acquisition starting today. I was like, what? She's like, yeah, I'm going to pass you to my acquisition manager. Uh, give me a minute. <laughs> and give me the script. And that was the first just like thrown into mm-hmm. the fire. But I think that's what really drove me to learn as much as I did. Gotcha. 100%. So how did you go from acquisition manager and disposition manager into um, Dataflick? Like that's not an easy job. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. For sure. So we were working there for about a year. And the whole goal originally, I think, was just so we could go and like learn and kind of get our feet wet Mm -hmm. because we had a lot of, well, at this time, you weren't even in the real estate space yet. It was just me like investing in like all these educational programs and stuff. So as I'm going through this, I got a lot of like almost theory. And then we had a lot of like, you know, experience almost at a startup, which Mm -hmm. um, was amazing. And now we're like, okay, we're ready to kind of do this ourselves. And a big part of this too, like we're super into like, you know, friends, family, like they're huge part of our lives. So we obviously are pretty homesick at this point too, because we just kind of up and left. Mm. And so this was actually, we seriously, seriously started considering it in 
November, December of 2019, just because that was the holidays were, you know, kind of hitting pretty hard, I would say. And so, you know, we put our notice and we're like, hey, let's go back to Knoxville, try and do this ourselves. And that was in January to February yes, of 2020 I, when we came back. I stayed for an extra month, kind of tried to help them get another hire to replace me. I didn't want to leave them hanging, right? Yeah. They taught me so much. Very thankful. Sure. Um, and but, we were helping build like a lot of the structure that they, you know, implemented still today and things like that. Right. Uh, like, no, yeah. 100%. So we came back, I believe, February 1st of 2020 was okay. like the first day back. And we heard this rumor of like, oh, COVID-19 is going around. And we're like, where are the odds that really affects us? Yeah. And I, behold. <laughs> I remember we were like sitting in our apartment and we were talking about like, you know, this is like, could this be an issue? Like for us starting our business, yeah. like in Knoxville and stuff. And we we're like, it'll be fine. It won't, it won't be a big impact. <laughs> Obviously, pretty long. <laughs> Slight difference. Yep. Um, so we get back. We start doing a lot of like different things just to like test and segment out like hey this is like working this is not like this is how we want to do it and we were buying data because obviously you have to do you have to have all the data to mm -hmm. actually launch the marketing and we realized pretty quickly that it was super fragmented as an industry mm -hmm. and it was insanely expensive yeah so at first i was like okay like let's see if we can aggregate our own data like build our own you know systems around this so I started learning like code by hand and realized pretty fast that it was going to be very inefficient for me to like do that, try and run marketing and try and like launch like a real estate company. Mm -hmm. So we made our first hire. Um, we didn't know it was for Dataflick yet, but just like a hire to help us run the data side. Mm -hmm. And that was just like scraping public resources and like, you know, going to the county, like getting PDFs, like data entering, like so all of that in. It was at this time, you weren't necessarily starting Dataflick. It was... Correct. We're doing a wholesaling company yep. in Knoxville. And while we're doing this, we need to get better data. Exactly. 100%. Okay. And so now we like, you know, build our own like little system and we're like, hey, this could be, this could be pretty good. And so when we're like doing this, we realize that hey, we need money because mm. there's so many like educational things that talk about like, oh, you can get into this with no money, but like they don't talk about marketing dollars and like mm. all the other expenses that mm. kind of add up really fast. So we were trying to find some funding to like get the real estate company started, but really it ended up turning into Dataflick. Yeah, pr pretty fast. Um, so the hire, his name's Gabe, still the best hire we've made to this day. Love mm -hmm. the guy. Um, but he was so good with compiling that data and even skip tracing on the back end, like really getting that to be a cohesive process. He did phenomenal on. Um, but it was mainly all for that wholesaling company. Until we figured out, hey, we actually really have something on the data side mm -hmm. that we can actually help other people out with and bring growth. I remember Ethan, so a good friend of ours, Ethan, um, he was one of the first ones that we like helped compile data for. Right. Mm -hmm. And tried to use it like that. And he started seeing success. And that was, I guess, the unofficial start of it all. Right. But yeah. It was that proof of concept. It's kind of like doing your first wholesale deal. Exactly. What, so, was, what was it that you guys felt like you landed on that was different because you could buy data. I mean, at this time, right, PropStream was on, uh, was coming up, Batch, or they were doing really well. Yep. Batch was coming up. Like, there's a lot of different data providers out there. Probably Radar has been around forever. Um, yeah, what, yeah. What was it that you guys felt like you guys landed on that was different? So I learned a technique of, like, data governance of just, mm -hmm. like, tracking, like, how accurate things were and just different techniques with Gabe on implementing that. And I started... Um, we started buying some data from different providers mm -hmm. and we realized pretty quickly that 
the quality was pretty low and very like outdated. Mm -hmm. So when I realized like, hey, we can just pull directly and kind of build our own systems, it's way better than like what we were able to buy at the time. And obviously things have changed a lot over the last like three years, but like at the time, like that was just the best we could do. And it was very, very affordable for us. Um, so it just kind of like was a double-edged sword there. So we started doing, you know, list stacking of every degree that you can probably think of and actually doing like, you know, hey, this person transacted, let's remove them from the database and like mm. doing a lot of like cleaning and stuff like that. And when we were talking to, um, you know, Ethan, which is the guy who was testing, kind of applying some proof of concept and things like that. We realized pretty fast that on the cleaning process and like actually optimizing the data, like, he's like I have no idea how to do that. Mm -hmm. We're like, that's interesting because like <laughs> that seems pretty easy to us at this right. point. So that was kind of the first building block. And then we realized like when we just stack all these lists together, like some of these list sizes are massive and like we don't have the marketing output to even get close to that. Yeah. So then it became like how much more efficient can we really make this? And then that was when we were like, you know, I was just looking up ways to do that. Mm -hmm. I stumbled on AI machine learning. And when I was in college, which I dropped out at the time, but I mean, the first few years I was studying computer <laughs> science and accounting. So like I understood like conceptually like what AI machine learning could do. So then we really started taking like the, you know, that whole process that I outlined and then overlaying the AI machine learning aspects at mm -hmm. like the most basic, basic level. Um, so it's like, you know, if there are, five attributes of like list stacking here, that would be moved up the rung as far as like the modeling goes. Mm -hmm. And then we realized like, oh, we can start like talking about like age and like, you know, just basic, basic like demographic things. Right. And then it just kept growing and growing and growing. And then we realized like this could be a product. Mm -hmm. So the same people that we were trying to get funding from for the real estate side, we were like, instead of that, can we just get funding for data flag yeah. and it, the big thing that was huge at that point was not necessarily getting the funding to run data flick but it was getting that marketing budget to do extensive testing like on the models we were creating right so we were spending at peak maybe like 40 50 thousand a month in marketing and it wasn't necessarily to you know generate wholesale deals or real estate deals in general but it was more of optimizing the systems to mm -hmm. be like ready for production for right. other users and things like that and this whole concept, our process is taking place like mid 2020, all the way up into September of 2021 when Dataflick actually launched. Got it. So it was in R&D for about a year and a half, roughly. So you were doing R&D with your own data that you guys were compiling. Correct. And you guys were running your wholesaling business. Correct. Based off this data, as well as Ethan and a couple other people. Yes. Uh, it got to the point where eventually we found it more valuable for all our time to be in that data side. Mm -hmm. And like we do our testing through those money partners from then on. Mm -hmm. Cause and obviously we still need to test everything. We need to make sure it works. Right. And like we're, we talked before the show, but like focus we think is pretty much everything. So mm -hmm. we were like, we probably should like really focus on data flick if we're, you know, gonna like be serious about it as opposed to just the housing side. Mm -hmm. And it's been super tempting obviously this whole time to like launch a housing company, but. Right. You know, we've probably had hundreds of conversations about, well, what if just yeah. just one yeah, just like right? one, one little campaign here. <laughs> um, so like it was important for us to almost like launch Dataflick by testing it in different places, like all around the US. Mm -hmm. So it was great because we learned so much so fast because we were having like these in-depth conversations with all these people testing the systems. And that was just invaluable, like testing to make data flip kind of what it is today, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're saying September of last year, 
or two years ago. Two years ago. Remember, two years ago was when you guys f- officially launched Dataflick, mm-hmm. and it was about a year and a half of testing with other people. So, how many clients, quote unquote clients, right, partners, whatever you guys want to call it, were you working with before you launched it? There was probably about five, and they, and we strategically like placed them in mm-hmm. different areas in the U.S. So, like Florida, yeah. um, upstate New York. Uh, Columbus in the Midwest, and we had a couple people testing in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. but we had some people doing California stuff, but you know it was just kind of yeah. all over the place at the time for them because of COVID and the housing market and yeah. everything. So it was really hard to get like reliable, you know, testing there. Um, but the goal was to just be in as many places in the U.S. as we could be yeah. for testing. And on top of that, um, one of the most beautiful things about AI and machine learning is. If it's a true deep learning model, it will improve, improve over time. Mm-hmm. It'll get better and better over time. So like the version we were way back then for those people in Las Vegas versus where we are now is like yeah. night and day. Truly. Sure. Right. Um, so talk to me about that experience, like launching it. Like when you say launch it, make it an official business, what does that mean exactly? Yes. So it was the two money partners I'm talking about are in a group called We Buy Houses. So it's a We Buy Houses conference. They were mm-hmm. about... 15, 20 investors there? Um, yeah, I think 2025, 20, something like that. Okay. So imagine like a, just like a standard like two-day event yeah. kind of thing. And I remember it was our first time ever even talking to a group that size, right? Much less actually pitching data flick. Yeah. So I was living in Ty's rental at the time. It was me and him there. He was house hacking. Um, and he was in one room. I was in another. We had our script of our PowerPoint, and we were just pacing, rehearsing <laughs> for hours and hours on end. Yeah. So nervous for this very first pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, but from that, we got like five users, and that was the start of it all. Got it. Okay. So then what has it been like since you started it? Because this is a completely different uh, venture, right? Like you guys worked at a smaller wholesaling company, um, and then you guys now there's a completely different environment. Very different, yeah. Yeah. What was it like launching this? Um, so obviously we're super in education. So we're in a ton of other like communities that are more on like the software side. Mm-hmm. So that was a whole other journey that we were kind of going down because it's like we need to know a lot about housing, but we also need to know a lot about launching a software company. Mm-hmm. Um, so like during this whole time of R&D period, we were almost prepping the launch for that as well and um, you know, making hires and things like that. So when we launched, it happened very fast like it so like september of 2021 the first three months were pretty slow but a year later we were occupying because we sell by a county license so we had about 185 counties occupied in 12 mm-hmm. months and we grew like 600 percent in 12 yeah. months um so that whole process from a like learning curve perspective but also like growth pains was yeah. i mean it was super exciting at the time but like looking back yeah. very stressful. Really thinking <laughs> about it now, it seems like the very common theme with us mm-hmm. is get thrown in the fire and make it right. work, right? Sure. Do you guys experience doubt along the way? Oh, yeah. What kind of doubts? Um, so mix of doubt and what's it called? Essentially wondering if you deserve to be where you are, mm-hmm. right? Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Real at exactly. the time, I think. Yeah. Right? Like this is our first time working with this many people, really trying to service them all, make them see the best. So if for some reason the data wasn't working for them or their callers weren't performing right. Mm-hmm. For me, as the acquisitions and customer success, I took took a pretty big toll on me mentally, right? Mm-hmm. That's what kept me up at night, being like, how can I get this better? What right. is really the missing link with their data? 
Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, who helped you guys along the way? Um, so we talk a lot about this too, but like we have some amazing support from like friends, family, and just like everyone in our lives. Like, you know, obviously there's a lot of skepticism because a lot of our friends and family weren't very entrepreneurial. So like yeah. a lot of this, they're like, what's wholesaling or like <laughs> you guys are in real estate, but you're also doing software. Like it was a very like, you know, tough transition for people to kind of see, but we're like, regardless of that, they were always very supportive and like, I don't think we would have made it without like a lot of that. Yeah. There's them and like the people who helped us in the industry, right? Yeah. Like once again, starting off and kind of growing up through it. Tiff and Josh were really there. Mm. Um, Tyler Evans and Ren with like Padley and Cameron mm. Hall. They have been great supporters as well. Uh, Cameron loves testing. Yeah. That is his favorite thing on earth. He's like, oh, you have this idea? Yeah, give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You want to try that? Please. Yeah. Um, so on the business side, having those partners who do support us on the money side, but also the testing and pushing us further and further. But as he said too, like without the family and friends support being like, you guys are going to do it. You're going to make it. The company's going to do great. Just keep going. Yeah. That's been a massive piece. What are some of the biggest wins uh, that you guys have experienced along the way? I mean, to touch on the real estate aspect too, like we were uh, doing these test sequences ourselves sometimes as well, but they're very small like campaigns. Um, so an example of this is we had a handwriting machine that we put in our house. So if you don't know what that is, it's basically a big, almost like 3D printer, and it holds a pen and actually handwrites letters for you. It's actually a company right here. We just we, we heard was, about it. Yeah, yeah, we were talking to them like right before. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, they, they're they a nationwide provider. So um uh, they were talking about their part. Of, what was it? There was some big real estate educator, like traditional real estate. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were working with. So there's no doubt in my mind those handwriting machines are so much more advanced than ours was. Yeah, this is like the cheapest version. <laughs> we're like, let's test it. I mean, yeah. it could be fun. So, so yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're living together at that time, right? It's us and two other roommates. We turned the sunroom into our office. Mm -hmm. You walk in, and there's just boxes and boxes of envelopes paper random pens and we would give the machine the pen plug it through the software to where it's literally handwriting it itself but you'd have to keep watch over it because if that pen ran out of ink it would go through another 20 envelopes of just like dry Scratching writing it. oh yeah. my gosh yeah <laughs> and then we bought a pretty crappy as well but 200 dollars folding machine that we would then run these through. That would get jammed 50% of the time. And we were hand stuffing all these. Like it was hand stamping like everything. It was a nightmare. But but regardless, <laughs> this win though. So we did like a, I mean, like a three to five thousand record campaign. Very small. Super, super small. And it was taking like just some of our testing data. And we launched this campaign first like week and a half. We get an insane deal. And it was a 28K wholesale. Mm. And that was like because that at that point, like we've been testing Dataflick for like six months, and then just to see this, you know, first try, five thousand mailers, twenty eight thousand, and that was. I mean, you know how it goes. Like <laughs> from there on, we're like, okay, like we can do this. Like we have just, something. Yeah, yes. it changed like the entire perspective because we were like, we can do this. Like yeah. it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's a great win on the actual real estate real side, estate yeah. side on the data side. It's probably, so we're able to look at the past transactions that occur and how many that are on our list. Mm -hmm. Essentially having a governance of how well we're performing in that county, seeing that number rise, like the big jumps, mm -hmm. that those are huge for me. Yeah. 
And this is like in terms of like the precision and accuracy of like, say there were a hundred transactions in a county last month. Like how many do we predict? How big was the list size? How efficient were we? Like metrics of performance, mm -hmm. like for our models, yeah. which is yeah. an interesting like KPI segment that like we have. Pretty nerdy win, but yeah. big win for me. <laughs> oh, that's a massive win, right? I mean, because one of the things that we talked about uh, prior to the show was, you know, you're able to predict about 71% Correct. Right, of the homeowners is going to sell. Correct. On the investor transactions for yeah. that 71%, yeah. yeah. And then on like listings, it's about like 60 to 65, depending on the area. Right. So you were talking about governance, which is a word I've never heard inside of real estate, <laughs> right? So talk to me about what governance is. Right. So in machine learning, there are tons of models that are curated for almost like fact checking. So it's like, if X happens, then we know from that that we need to like, hey, someone go look at this internally from like a data, our data science team. So if a, say we have a county and last month that the list size is 50,000, but next month um, before we like launch to a user, the list size is 200,000. So it detects these anomalies of governance to make sure like, hey, we're doing something right or hey, we're doing something wrong and we need to have a team member go look at it. Mm -hmm. So we overlay that technology into all of our users' counties as well. So like before they get a list, all of these governance like checks are created based on like the models themselves. So that could be list size. If last month the accuracy was lower than like what we wanted it to be, things like that. Um, and it gets very, very granular when you're talking about like, so if we have a transaction that have or not a transaction, but if we see any inaccuracy in our database compared to like the county auditor, like we have all of those metrics mm -hmm. going as well, just to make sure people are getting really accurate data yeah. as far as like the homeowner information, things like that. Um, so there are dozens of these yeah. governance models. And on system. top of that, so that's governance on the machine learning side, right? There's also governance on that actual real estate side. Um, and I apply that more to making sure that person's a right fit for that list size and the amount of transactions mm -hmm. occurring, right? If you go into a, massive county like we're in maricopa it has 1.5 total 1.5 million total residential properties or something crazy like that yeah. right that's going to be a massive list to get through if you have one or two callers or something like that you're just not going to efficiently get through that yeah so that's another form of governance we can kind of apply on the beforehand mm -hmm. to make sure hey even before you sign up with us let's make sure what you're wanting is realistic sure um so, you know, we're talking about machine learning and then on top we talk about AI, you know, and right now AI is a really hot, hot topic. Uh, before we get into AI and how to use it, I just want to get, you know, a touch on the difference between machine learning and AI because it, it seems to me when I hear marketing and people talking about this, it's the same thing when it's not. It is not the same thing. Can you talk, uh, touch on that, please? The simplest way to understand it is, so AI is trying to, replicate human-like behavior, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. So it would be like, almost like how a human would, so ChatGPT is obviously a very, very hot topic. Right. So that an AI example of that is the conversational ability that has, and if you don't know what ChatGPT is, it's essentially a conversational AI tool where you can have conversations about whatever topic that you need help with. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey ChatGPT, can you help me write this SEO article? It's like, sure, what are we writing about? Mm. So things like that. So that is an example of how artificial intelligence is mimicking human behavior. Mm -hmm. Whereas machine learning uh, more talks about actual predictive technology. 
So the most common way to do this is something called a regression model. A regression model just talks about here are all the things that historically have happened, and it can be anything about data or events, things like that. And the machine learning aspect of it is predicting what would happen based on historical data of a concept. Right. So when we're combining all of these technologies together, there are tons of use cases and, you know, hundreds. Oh, we're hundreds. going to talk about a lot of this. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that is like the simplest way. And it gets very, very so, granular from there. But at a high level, AI is trying to get the computer to act like a person would. Correct. Uh, with the data. Machine learning is just give it all the data in the world and have it try to give us the best guess uh, on future data. Exactly. Correct. So an example, like very, very simple for like real estate. So we're using AI to analyze like demographical behavior as mm -hmm. an example. So like here are the events that are happening in someone's life. And based on like human behavior in the past, this is what would have someone sell also based on a machine learning model, which is the historical data of transactions that actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, just like as a use case for like how our models work. Right. And then as far as data flick, then the way you guys work is based off of machine learning. Correct. And we're overlaying some AI elements that are almost taking like the human behavior concepts of mm -hmm. like life events in pe that are in people's lives and then tailoring that with our machine learning models based on the historical data. Okay. So then I guess the first question then, right? I mean, I imagine other people would want to ask you. There's a lot of data providers out there. I've talked about a lot of them. Why Dataflick? You want to handle it? Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> um, so for us, and once again, difference between that AI and actual machine learning. Mm -hmm. There aren't a ton of companies out there actually doing that AI paired with machine learning mm -hmm. aspect to create predictive analysis. And you can stack a ton of data. You can do all that, which is great. And if you can do it right, you can target a ton of people. 100% get in front of the right people. Um, our whole mission statement, our whole goal is to cut that down while still actually getting in front of the right people, mm -hmm. right? So a huge part of this gets into marketing dollars. How we said, that's a really big overhead. Mailers go anywhere from 50 cents to $1.50. Right. Um, text costs money, all, all that good stuff. If we can cut that down by providing just better upfront data. Now, I always describe the data as the gas to the car, right? Yeah. You still need the tires, engine, transmission, et cetera. But what you put in definitely will come back out on that back end as well. So it's a different octane. A hundred percent. It's true. So I'm going to speak what I know, and you tell me where, where I got the data wrong, right? So you look at, you know, there's Bash, there's PropStream, there's there's a eighty twenty. I'm a big fan of them. Investor Machine, I'm a big fan of them, right? Those are great uh, great data providers and property radar as well, mm -hmm. right? So you got like the tiers, they're like hundred to two hundred bucks a month, right? And you got the higher tiers, you got eighty twenty and Investor Machine. And my understanding of those is they're pulling public record directly, right? Like the counties, counties or, or wherever else the public records are coming from. And you got Audantic, which has been the big bad boy for the longest time. Right. And my understanding from them is machine learning, right? It's that regression model we're talking about is that here are all the people that sold to a cash investor. Here are their 400 data points or whatever it is approximately from public records, not public records, uh, from um, other data, data companies. Raw data providers. Right? Yeah. Uh, data brokers. From data brokers. There you go. Right. Whether it's Melissa data, Adam data, whatever. Right. They're pulling all the data points and then saying based off of the people that sold in the past, 
here are the people that will probably sell given their current data points. Is Dataflick basically replicating that model? So we parse it out into, so we have two primary flagship products. So mm. it's our realtor product and our investor product. Sure. So the machine learning aspect of this to talk about like the regression models. Mm. So first we're going to look at our, the realtor product. These are all the people who sold on market to the MLS. Mm -hmm. Very different group of people who are selling. Well, the very different market. data points. Exactly. <laughs> so we're taking those two pillars of data and that is our regression models for specifically each product respectively mm -hmm. so it's like here are all the people who sold off market to an investor here are all the people who sold on market with a realtor mm -hmm. so that is our training data the and i have no idea what other providers or what other companies do but the way we do it is we have kind of three pillars so it's our housing data and our demographical data and then all of our skip tracing sources mm -hmm. Um, we could touch on the skip tracing, but for now, yeah. let's focus on just the actual property data and the demographical data. So in totality, there's roughly about 900 attributes per household that we're tracking. 900? 900. Okay. Um, and that's everything from income modeling all the way to like education or and life events and things like that. So it's like, hey, based on the last five years, like this is the kind of trajectory of like this person has moved up in housing. Like they went from an apartment that they're renting all the way to like, you know, a upper middle class home. Mm -hmm. So all of those life events, all that demographical data modeled into, you know, those 400 demographical attributes. And then we're taking all of these property characteristics from like tax assessors and mortgage, uh, like mortgage recorder databases and things like that. So we take both of those and then apply the historical data for each of those respectively. And then we model all that and put it into a score from zero to 100. Mm -hmm. The higher the score, the more likely they are to sell. So internally, we're running about eight different models to come up with that one score that like our users actually see. Yeah. Um, so it's very complicated. So there's a score based off the person's data points. Correct. So there's a score based off of the house. Correct. Or the or property they live in. 100%. Yep. So there's a lot of commonalities out there between the average length that a house actually gets purchased to when it gets resold mm -hmm. and things like that. And obviously that will vary depending the county, depending the area, price point, et cetera. But that's the thing our system's really looking to interact. Is it looking at that? And I'm asking this is very selfishly because <laughs> I'm used to guys here in Maricopa County. Uh, does it say then with your machine learning data that because you were saying in, uh, we have 190 different uh, um, uh, predominant neighborhoods here. What was it? Oh, yeah. So uh, there's 119 neighborhoods in Maricopa, mm -hmm. primary. So if you were to take the top 25 neighborhoods based on investor transactions, mm -hmm. they occupy 70% of the total investor transactions that actually happen. Like the 80-20 rule. Exactly. Right. So we got 25. Yep. So of those 25, you guys having your data modeled that we have a faster turnover in these 25 neighborhoods versus the other of the remaining 119. To a degree, right? So we're making these predictions. I'm not going to say like everything I tell you right now is 100% truth. Yeah. <laughs> Go with it. Yeah. Um, but to a degree, we can almost hypothesize based yeah. off what's happened in the past and that historical data. Okay, so I guess the, another way to ask the question is, you know, talking about the modeling data, like based off the house, um, is it like in Maricopa County? Are we using this one thing where like we say, I don't know what the number is in Maricopa County right now, but everyone says, you know, somewhere like around seven years, right? Home ownership. Five to seven years, pretty average. Right. So are we saying seven years of home ownership 
for all Maricopa County? Or do you say like, hey, in this neighborhood is seven years, this neighborhood is three years? I'm just seeing how granular you're getting with this. So we have four levels of neighborhoods. Okay. So it's macro, standard neighborhood, and then it goes to sub neighborhood mm. and subdivision. Got so it. every one of those like subsected levels, they all have their own metrics of performance that mm. we're also tracking and overlaying in. Got it. And then another question I have is because we had Robert Wensley on the show, right, with InvestorLift. That yep. guy is a freaking genius, right? <laughs> and one thing he was talking about is Facebook has this profile for you and all your life events so that when you do sign up for Facebook, it already has this. I think they call it the ghost data, if I recall correctly. Yep, ghost data. Right. With your guys' data, do you guys have a snapshot of this person today or do you have this person's life event? Like life story in your database. I know you, you can explain the lookalike style. Yeah, I would say a mix. Um, so we definitely have pretty up-to-date data on that demographic mm -hmm. side. But also we are looking at years of historical data as well because we need that build-out. Now a really cool thing that some of our users are doing is with Facebook's lookalike audience. Uh, for people who don't know what that is, let's say you have 10 profiles. Facebook can go through and say we found A, B, and C are very mm -hmm. common across 10. So we're going to find 10 new ones to reach out to, right? Pretty simple. Um, people are able to do that with our data. So now you're stacking two machine learning models mm -hmm. on top of each other to then find new people who are just as likely to transact. Got it. We're so, almost like creating market share. So it's like yeah. there may have been 100 transactions last month, but we, we're giving you the people who also look like those people. So you can almost create more opportunities that way as well. Yeah. So you're saying you're taking the audience or you're taking the, the list, motivated homeowners, potential motivated homeowners. Correct. Right. People that look like they're going to sell and you're putting that in Facebook. So my question here then is how do we transfer that? Because my understanding with uh, Facebook and look like audience is when you upload the, your your list, because we tried doing this, we, we upload our list. the The match rate seems to be consistently not the best, only because when they sign up for Facebook, their email address and data is a little bit different than what we have for them. So, how's that match rate um, looking? So, for us, the way that we tell people to do it, and some like we've heard circumstances where people are like, "Hey, like." You know, we got all of our lists uploaded, and we had certain people who are like 30% uploaded. What happened? So, mm -hmm. we don't exactly know how Facebook does it, obviously, but we tell people to take the so on our skip tracing, we have something called the last reported date. Mm -hmm. And the way that our skip tracing actually works is we buy about 6,000 public and private sources, and that can be everything from a utility bill all the way to a gym membership. Mm -hmm. And we run the date of birth, first name, last name, and property address through those 6,000 sources, and we say, hey, um, there's an active account that matches that information and it was last active on X date. Yeah. So our skip tracing will give you the last reported date of that activity date through one of the 6,000 sources. Yeah. So from that, we will take, hey, here are the three most recent actual last reported dates for each number, mm -hmm. upload that into the Facebook custom audience. Gotcha. Because statistically, that has a much higher likelihood to actually find the person that an email sure. does. People do upload two emails, but I mean, I, I have like eight emails. I don't know how many you have, but yeah. it's just unlikely <laughs> you're going to get the right match, right? Right. Yeah. So then um, going back to your, your, your modeling, the person, the, the property, and you mentioned the skip tracing. How, how does that... Correct. How does that become a factor 
and the likelihood someone's going to sell. So it's not necessarily the skip tracing database is tying into the likelihood to sell, mm -hmm. but we're using AI technology to find the skip tracing numbers. Got so it. like from those 6,000 sources outlining like the you know process I just did. So we're saying like, hey, statistically, based on historical data, like we've had these people connect with like this last reported date. Because mm. like what we started to do is aggregate actual connects from our users on phone numbers. So mm -hmm. it's like, hey, here's this cold calling campaign and here are all the verified, like this is their phone number. And we're actually tying that data back in as well mm -hmm. to try and like increase the accuracy of our skip tracing database. So that's the AI element of that, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily tying back to the likelihood to sell piece. Got it. Was there anything else you want to add to that? No, nah, he covered it pretty well, actually. Okay. <laughs> All right. So then hopefully then we were able to kind of uh, illustrate uh, for everyone that's listening, right? So because there's, there's all these different data products. I just want to make sure like we're, when we're saying what Dataflick is, we're clearly uh, describing it. So it's machine learning based with AI assistance, uh, the, the how to identify uh, the most likely seller. Exactly. Correct. So um, one question we talk a lot, a lot about, and uh, this might be a little bit challenging, is like, if someone wanted to go and replicate your business, right? Like if someone comes on, like, you know, if someone wants to build a wholesaling business, how are they doing it? So if someone wanted to, you know, compete against Dataflick, right? What are some, like, what are the things you guys have to figure out along the way to get to where you guys are? Sure. Yeah. So we have, during those initial R&D days, mm -hmm. we had to completely scratch our whole system. Like seven times. <laughs> like this was years of building the well a year at that point of truly building it out to realize that it wasn't at the level that we needed it to be mm -hmm. by any means um back then we made the mistake of hiring a developer that we shouldn't have mm -hmm. right it wasn't we skimped out on price a little because we're starting up right small trying we've to done, be late. we've done that yeah, yeah. get course. a little greedy it <laughs> makes sense um <laughs> But to actually get to the point we are now, it's been a very long journey of a ton of trial and error mm -hmm. and a lot of funding. Yeah. So the other aspect that's pretty interesting. So we, everyone talks a lot about machine learning, how it improves month over month because mm -hmm. you get more data and like it just improves month over month. And so I'm a big proponent of like the economic moat, if you're familiar with the concept. Those who aren't, it's basically this is your company and like how can we build a moat around this company to keep other people away from it sure so our best moat is building that historical database because you can't get it unless you're actively like storing it month mm. over month so for someone to even try to copy it they're first going to have to get all of that historical data mm -hmm. and by the time that they get to where we are today we're obviously going to be like that much further ahead that's the argument that's been made like supposedly why no one will ever catch tesla is that exactly they even though they have all the, I don't think they have any patents, right? Like everything's like open records. Like here's how you they, build they open a car source battery. it. Yeah. yeah. Here's how you build a car, our car batteries, right? Here's exactly how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. <laughs> but they have been tracking all the driving behavior for mm -hmm. AI and, and, and uh, um, autopilot. So they have all the records stored on how to, uh, they've recorded all this driving behavior. And that's supposedly the, their advantage. Yes. So, that being said, that makes total sense to me. <laughs> but if someone were to try to compete against you, right? First thing you guys did was the funding. And then you guys started buying data. Yes. So you have to buy data from how many different data brokers are you guys buying from? We have 
about 14,000 sources. 14,000 sources. Yeah, we spend like 90,000 a month just on raw information. It's <laughs> If you're doing this for yourself, unless you plan to take over the whole U.S., mm. it is... It's not really financially feasible. <laughs> yeah. right. So 14,000 different data records. Um, data scientists is something I've heard thrown a lot, thrown around a lot. Right? Yes. It's like, I've got this many different data scientists working for me. Right. In the conversation we had before the call or before the show, I actually believe you guys have data scientists. Right. It's true. So um, <laughs> yes. explain to me or explain for people listening what a data scientist is and then how many you guys have. So for us, um, te their technical titles are machine learning engineers. Mm -hmm. So they, there are three of them just on like that aspect. Data science is more on, so it's like the data science team and there's like subcategories of people that can kind of go in that. So an example is we have a data engineer. So that person is just handling like data governance. Yeah. So it's like, you know, are we aggregating databases together, at, like cleaning them, making sure they're maintained? Like, so the most common example is, you know, there's probably anywhere from like one to 200,000 transactions a month. And all that has to be not only updated, but then re-uploaded from model adjustments as well. Yeah. Um, and month over month, it optimizing on like the other properties who didn't sell and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that would be like a data engineer. And then a machine learning engineer is someone who just focuses on like actual models based on the regression models we mentioned earlier in the show. So we have three machine learning engineers and they all three have um, PhDs. Yeah. So they're, Pretty talented guys. <laughs> yeah. They know a thing or two. So going into, we are talking about the title of the show, right? How to use AI to predict your next motivated homeowner. So then how do you use AI to predict your next motivated homeowner? So, and I know like when we were talking before the show, there's like four different applications or four different ways we apply AI. So go ahead. So we have all of our different models that we've, you know, stringed mm -hmm. together. So like we have our investor model and then our realtor model. Mm -hmm. And obviously with the investor side, like we're just using the training data of people who sold off market to an investor and then all those other sources combining together to almost enrich and like almost uncover insights. It's probably yeah. the best way to put well, it. I guess like, cause like prior to the show, uh, you know, one of the cool things I get and there's an immense benefit for myself <laughs> <laughs> is, you know, the guest comes in and they hang out and then, you know, they talk to the media team and they talk to my wholesale team. And so, like, you, you guys and Bino, our, our Dispo guy, totally geeked out on how to use AI in gotcha. Dispo. So what were some of the things you were sharing with Bino? Yeah, so a big thing we talked with him about was ChatGBT and the 4.0 model they just released. Um, these conversational AIs you can do so much with. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous. You can use them to format even the emails you're wanting to reach out to these prospects with. If you have the list of your prospects and certain bios or things like that with them, ChatGPT can write out literally individualized emails ready to just send out to all these that you can upload mm -hmm. into a blast software, things of that nature, mm -hmm. right? So just optimizing that in ways where he can get so much more done in such little time yeah. was the main thing we talked about, and he was ecstatic. <laughs> so a direct example would be if you're a wholesaler, you have your VIP list, mm -hmm. or if you don't, you should. So right. like here's like your 10 to like, 20 best clients and you, you should have like maybe deals they bought from you in the past maybe it's some bios on them or like their company things like that so like i've seen people upload data like that and then automatically spit out like custom tailored messages of you know emails of like hey here's this deal here are all the property details 
So like an, another example would be, I've seen people use it for creating real estate listing descriptions. Mm -hmm. So you're almost like creating a description for every house that you're trying to dispo mm -hmm. while giving them that custom tailored touch of, a, you know, like almost customization for that person specifically. Right. And this is something that can be done in like, like 20 emails in 20 seconds. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Probably send an email about this property, custom tailored to this person's profile. Yep. And that's just like dispo for yeah. like one very small example, right. I would say. And on top of that, you could almost write it out in a way to where if, so it's a system that can also memorize, right? Mm -hmm. So if it knows the average buy box of this VIP seller, it can almost auto apply this property that you're looking at to the sellers that actually fit that proper buy box mm -hmm. as well which is just taking a whole nother step further. And like right. highlighting the benefits of the property based on the buy box that that person wants. And right. this could all just be in Excel and you're just like copy and paste it in. Yeah. Crazy. Um, <laughs> so one thing that's come up, you know, they're talking about how AI is, you know, going to be coming into our industry and, and disrupting our industry, right? Uh, I made the argument that no matter what happens, you still need salespeople, right? Like no matter what happens, you need something on the other end of the homeowner that can demonstrate empathy, something we talked about in the beginning of the show. Mm. So I'm hearing people talking right now how they can use AI for uh, texting and cold calling. So what are you guys' thoughts for, for texting and cold calling? So text, I think there's a big difference between that initial marketing reach out versus that acquisition manager who's actually showing the empathy and walking them through the deal, mm -hmm. right? That's two separate divisions in my mind. Yeah. Text is pretty straightforward, I think, though, mm. because if you're looking at a conversational AI, if it just has some training data on what your VA or you yourself, these conversations you've had mm -hmm. with these people, it can pretty much predict what to say and pump it out to at least get you the lead. Yeah. Cold call, that's something we've kind of talked about, and it could be very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so there's certain voice AIs. Right yeah. now, that's primarily tied around celebrities, and mm -hmm. people will make funny videos of like Joe Biden, Barack Obama mm -hmm. playing a video game or something, yeah. right? <laughs> but if you can get it to just be a generic voice that's the primary voice, and you have voice recognition, so essentially the seller, when they say something, you're able to process it, once again, based off that training data, come up with a response that then this AI replies back, mm -hmm. you could almost automate cold calling which is just an insane thing to think right. about some other like kind of low-hanging fruit from that so obviously people who are cold calling primarily use overseas people to do it and accents can be an issue or a deterrent to some people that they're prospecting mm -hmm. on so that voice ai technology can combine with a perfect dialect of like whatever accent whatever language that you want whatever area mm -hmm. if you're in the south having more of a southern twang versus new york right yeah and I mean, like, that is stuff that exists today 100%. Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, like, if someone could, if you're using a cold call overseas and their English is, like, you know, comprehensively very good and the dialect is, or, you know, just how they speak is the issue, that can be fixed. Right. Now, all of a sudden, you know, it changes everything, I think. Like, to get an American cold caller, it's like $15, $20 an hour versus right. Plus a VA being too. six, seven. Right. Now you're able to do that, fixing that accent piece and having them still be great at their job, which they are. So what I'm hearing right now is the texting component, the initial outbound texting component 
and the first couple of replies, you believe that could be done right now. 100%. Yes. (laughs) So the other thing that I actually just thought about, as you said that, so (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but when we were doing the texting, I absolutely hated writing all of the templates that the texting platform had to use because you have to have such a large variance for it to not get blocked as spam. Not to get caught by the carriers. Exactly. And I mean... Um, you could literally give a list of the blacklisted words they're not mm-hmm. supposed to use, and it would produce 200 variations of that. Perfectly. In like five minutes. Yeah. And like that would have taken us hours. For, right. for perspective, we suck at writing. I will say that. Like that's just not our forte, not our go-to. Our website was mainly written by AI, in mm-hmm. fact. Yeah. Um, but that's still a challenging thing that I think a lot of people deal with, how to mm-hmm. get that initial touch out while not getting blocked by the carriers, things of that nature. Yeah. So yeah, that's a phenomenal application. So that's, maybe this would be a new venture after this episode. The three of us can do yeah, something yeah. Out like that. <laughs> so that's for, for, for the initial text blast. Yes. So what are some other applications? So we just talked about Dispo a little bit. What are some other applications potentially using AI for acquisitions? I saw a really cool startup. Um, can't mention them because I know who they are. Um, so they, um, they were doing a pre-seed funding for... It's actually a really cool concept, but they were tailoring people who would call like a suicide prevention hotline. And, you know, the big issue with that is when that person receives that call, it's very, very serious, right? Mm-hmm. So guiding that conversation correctly is crucial. Mm-hmm. And their whole niche started out to be like, let's focus on this, you know, conversation. And as it's happening in live time, an AI system will say, hey, hey, here's how you should definitely like steer this conversation mm-hmm. based on all the historical data that it's been compiled with. All right. Um, kind of like using Gong, Gong AI. Yes, I've seen some stuff about them as well. So they were like, that was their original like purpose. They made a massive pivot because they realized they're you know not very strong market there, mm. and they switch it to sales. So as you're having a conversation through acquisitions for virtually anything, you know, you could set the parameters beforehand and say like, hey, here is a company that is doing B2B sales for, I don't know, uh, logistics. Mm -hmm. And so in that niche, let's say that we um, like, here's all this training data on calls that we've seen in the past for this. And every objection is being handled based on like, hey, here are the three ways that you can respond to that objection on a sales call in live time. Mm So if you overlaid that kind of technology on the acquisition side, I mean, I think it would streamline training. Like, yeah. I don't know the percentage, but it would be rapid improvement, I think. And on the acquisition side, but also if you apply that to the initial with the callers, once mm. again. Yeah. This if is, you're not going all the way to automate your callers, right? But just having them, because training callers, you're generally relying on a manager or you have them in-house, which takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. But they're able to have a live time script being printed out that they can just follow along with mm-hmm. that's half the battle so we have in uh, in our uh, organization ian right he's uh, uh the first guy we actually hired to be part of our, one of our sales trainers mm-hmm. right and uh he was screwing around one day and he's like let's make some videos right and he's like i think it was jasper is what he used like hey jasper <laughs> yeah. yep. how was steve trang answered this question yep and uh, there's enough data out there of me <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. Where he gave an answer, and he's like, "That's exactly it's pretty close, right?" How he would answer that question? <laughs> like, dang, that's crazy. That's what that's what's out there. Yeah. So you and I had, t- had a conversation uh, before about one other application. 
is that, you know, salespeople are notorious for not taking great notes. Mm. No, yes. terrible. I'm right. so bad about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, we were talking about an application uh, that we could have it where the call is recorded, I think, using CallRail. Yes. Right? And it's sent to ChatGPT, and then it would transcribe it uh, uh, and, and give bullet point notes into the CRM. There are so many companies that I was do about it. to say. So this is actually getting very, very common. Even Zoom has like an otter.ai application. Well, plugin. that's just a transcription. Exactly. But a bullet point summary. Yes. Summary. Yeah. So it's like not only summaries I've seen, I've seen like action items and like levels of improvement based mm -hmm. on the call if it's a sales call, mm -hmm. which is like, that's insane. Because yeah. like even from like a sales perspective, if you're a sales manager, you can almost like like get all that information and then just use that to streamline like just focusing on like improving your salespeople as opposed to like listening to every call and like it just is mm -hmm. very tedious um and like that could be applied for cold callers especially because like i've definitely seen and heard complaints about people saying like hey these cold call notes are terrible mm -hmm. and not anymore um, <laughs> So that's just like a few things I think you could overlay. Um, and all that technology like exists right now, 100%. Yeah. And then another thing we were talking about is, you know, you guys have, how many clients do you guys have now? About 70, 75-ish. Yeah, across about and, like 180 uh, counties. Yeah, like and your, pro your product's not, you know, the cheapest. Right? It's not. It's not. not. So, uh, so you get to talk to operators that are doing real business. So what are you guys finding is, is the most effective use, right? So... They've got the data. They're buying the data from you guys. What is the most effective way of using it? And I'm asking this because you had suggested prior to the show that cold calling is not the most effective. Yes. So <laughs> what are the best ways to leverage the data? So I've, I've, I've got a data flick. I bought the data. What is the best way to actually use, uh, use the data? Definitely. So cold call has its place, right? In terms of efficiently getting through a list to mm -hmm. capture that market share, that's where it really lacks unless you have like 15 callers, yeah. right? Because then you're making up the ground, but that can get pricey. Um, for us, it's very much omni-channel or multi-channel marketing where you are hitting these people from just the angle that they are most likely to respond to. And of course, predicting that is a pretty hard thing to initially do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so hitting them from all those angles is... Almost pretty crucial. If I know on my list in the past three months, we've predicted 70% of these transactions that occurred, which is our average, mm -hmm. it's just getting in front of them. And that's right. why we include that skip tracing in our service to kind of encourage that as well. Yeah. But the whole thing is we really want you to be able to have that marketing dollars and have that angle to get in front of them the best. So let's talk about the uh, what that means then, right? Omnipresence. Right, because, you know, yeah, obviously the more ways you get in front of them, the more effective. Uh, and, and it's it's uh, cumulative, right? If you can ha get in front of multiple channels, all the channels are more effective. 100%. So when you're saying omnipresent, like what are the different channels you guys are recommending? Definitely. So the most common ones I see people use today are callers and texters, right? Mm. Text is pretty efficient with getting through a list for the price, 100%. Um, but building out your brand it's actually a really important piece because that's going to affect these response rates in mm -hmm. general. So for direct mail, for example, on postcards, I've seen people pair it with their TV commercials and it'll go from a 0.5% response rate to about a 2% mm -hmm. 
which for postcards is pretty massive depending the area you're yeah. in, of course. Um, so building out that way to where you're getting that inbound flow and outbound flow to that pretty high degree is pretty important yeah. in my opinion. So that's TV and direct mail. So, so things we talk about is TV, direct mail, texting, and cold calling. Am I missing anything or is that all of them? Um, Touch on the geofencing as yeah, well. You can take that. <laughs> so like something that's in beta right now is there's a concept called geofencing. For those who don't know what that is, that's essentially drawing a almost like a polygon or targeting a very specific area geographically. Yeah. Um, and when someone goes in that area or if they have gone in this geographic area, people do ads towards it. Mm. So like the, um, I mean, I've seen this from anywhere from like, uh, say Dick's Sporting Goods. Mm. There's a fishing department. And they can actually track if someone has gone specifically in that fishing department, then they will send like actual ads catered to fishing. Mm -hmm. So that would be like an example of like an e-commerce use case. But right. for us, um, we've been like beta testing with so a couple different users. Like say we have this property address. As soon as they cross that boundary of the actual polygoned area of their address and mailing address specifically, just because they live there, they will start to get tailored ads that are specifically focusing, you know, the highest level would be focusing on the distress factor that they're actually experiencing. Yeah. So like, say it was bankruptcy, you would have an ad that's, you know, lightly touching on bankruptcy um, just to make it feel like very personalized to them. Mm -hmm. So that helps build a ton of brand equity. Um, this is also more on the realtor side too, but like if they're seeing you virtually everywhere and then you send a direct mail piece, or then you, cold call, cold text them, it's amazing results. Right. So like eventually that, that's kind of like where we're going as a company is to focus less on like, here's like one campaign that works. But if you don't want to do an omni-channel approach, then we're probably not like the best fit for you in general. Because yeah. I think like from a saturation perspective, if you're not like doing omni-channel at this point, I think that it's going to be very, very hard to build like predictability. And you probably see that more than I do. Oh, 100%. Um, the amount of times someone will have one or two cold callers. We kind of talked about this already, yeah. right? And going to like Maricopa yeah. saying, oh, yeah, I can hit up that whole area with one caller. You're just not going to match the person doing yeah. seven different marketing campaigns. Right. Never will. So the argument here then is uh, what you were just suggesting a moment ago is if I'm going to buy the data from Dataflick, I should be prepared to call them, texting uh, mail them and then at some point geofence exactly marketing and even like if you have creative ways yourself that I haven't mentioned here mm -hmm. that you think oh maybe I can do this and change it up and get ahead of the competition mm -hmm. like that's yeah. not a bad thing in my opinion at all it's interesting we've seen some people do really well with door knocking actually mm -hmm. yes it's actually. it's hard to build a team that wants to do that but if you can get the right hires there I mean, I'm, I've, we've seen like two, three deals a week yeah. come from door knocking mm -hmm. for people because they're just taking like a foreclosure list or like a very, very high like distress list, overlaying it with the AI of like this person's the most likely to sell that's also going through foreclosure, door knocking them, one out of every 10 is like a legit opportunity. Yeah. Um, so it can get very, very granular very fast. I think there's probably like 15 to 20 different sources that you could do from like SEO, PPC, YouTube ads. Mm -hmm. It just depends on like, how big you want to get and like how, you know what the budget is obviously yeah. and just to really uh dive a little bit deeper into this you know we're talking about geofencing um for those that aren't uh, 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 familiar with the application right like when i first heard about geofencing it was basically like you go to a hotel conference right 
now you're getting retargeted for like all the different products that they were selling at that hotel conference. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like and it doesn't matter uh, if, if your phone was somewhere inside that building, then after you left that building, you're getting retargeted for weeks to buy whatever products they were pitching at that, at that exactly. event. So for you guys, I get some data from Dataflick. I know where they live. If their phone or the computer, obviously the computer's not leaving, but if their phone was inside their house, we are retargeting them on their device, Hulu, Peacock, whatever. Streaming services. Whatever streaming services yeah. they're, they're watching, we were sending them video ads onto their device on whatever platforms they're on. Video ads, banner ads. Display ads. Yeah. Essentially whatever fits in that budget of marketing so we mm -hmm. can hit them efficiently enough to really build that brand awareness. Yeah, and it's obscene what we're talking about here because <laughs> Hulu is not very expensive to market on. Right. Yeah, this is so the average cost in our testing campaign was ten thousand records for thirty five hundred bucks. So about yeah. thirty five cents a hit. But to create the illusion of being everywhere, right? very mm -hmm. powerful. Because right? if you want to market on TV, I mean, you're starting at ten thousand a month. Exactly. Starting, right? You're hitting a lot of people, but you're starting at ten thousand. But in our market, I mean, Doug Hopkins is like the biggest fish, right? He's the Hulk in our pond. Yeah. I believe he's spending like a hundred grand a month. But to create the illusion of being everywhere. Very powerful. And this is so powerful because that illusion builds that, once again, brand authority. Mm -hmm. So once you're tying this with those other marketing channels, you're going to see an increase in those as well. Yeah. And like, I think it's super important to almost position your outreach to like play on that. It's like, hey, I don't know if you've seen us around. I don't know if you got our mailer. It's like lightly touching it. Mm. Um, and like, I think in our first like beta test, it was like two weeks of geofence targeting and of the... 10,000 and the first week of cold calling they're like four legit opportunities yeah and generally about 50 percent close rate with that group yeah so like it it's almost like taking cold calling texting direct mail and every other like channel that's outbound to mm. like the next level well this is definitely the next level and it's something i actually looked at a long time ago you know um so i was kind of i'm kind of curious how you guys are able to do it because i looked into geofencing years ago Right. And for me, when I was when I was looking at it, I was like, okay, so we can pull their IP address. And for the IP address, we can have an idea where they live. But what we were doing, it was like a five mile radius. Like, this is completely useless yeah. information. Useless. Yeah. Right. And for us, we're almost doing it the other way around. Right. right. Instead of tracking IP address first, we're doing it based off that mail address. Yeah. So, how are you guys able to pull? Are you guys pulling an IP address or what do you guys? So, we're using like essentially, and this is also like, we're launching an entire division for this, so by no means am I an expert in this, yeah. uh, but that's how we're hiring the people that are. <laughs> um, so we are using a polygon system, which is basically the boundary lines of the surveyed area for mm -hmm. a property address. So the second an active IP address that is on this platform crosses that boundary, that makes them, you know, game to market to essentially. Mm -hmm. And from that, like you can really tailor like, hey, here's what we're like, this person's been hit, let's do retargeting towards them. Mm -hmm. So like an interesting metric that we track from a KPI perspective on this uh, test sequences was how many people saw this ad, typed in our like the company name and the URL as an oh. example. Mm -hmm. So now we're getting them on the website. Mm -hmm. Now we can retarget them on Facebook, YouTube, everything. Yeah. Um, but that's like, I mean, yeah. we're doing this at the highest, highest yeah. level on that kind of stuff, but that's not where we're starting. <laughs> yeah, and oh. adding to that, right? We're talking about doing this on that very high level. Once you know, like, oh, we got this many impressions, this many people interacted with the ad, this many people went to Google, 
and searched our name after seeing the ad, mm-hmm. et cetera. In terms of retargeting with mailers and stuff, those solid 700 people, that's a very small list. You can send very high quality mailers to them at that We're point. We're definitely going to door knock those guys. Yeah, that's exactly. What I was saying. Yeah, <laughs> just, we got to get in front of them, right? Because yeah. if they typed in your name after seeing that, they're obviously thinking about it. They're raising their hand. Yeah. yeah. Can't raise your hand any more than that. <laughs> Truly. Without literally typing in your name, you yeah. know, and becoming a lead. Yeah. And to like build off that brand equity piece, like this is, we're big fans of the month over month improvement, obviously. So like mm-hmm. the longer you do this, the more brand equity you build and the more trust you naturally build. And that's pretty invaluable, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Adding to that, actually. So you said you've done geofencing before. It was kind of a nightmare, right? Um, well, no, I saw how my accuracy, I was like, I'm not putting a dollar. Not <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, yeah. fair. Um, the guy we're bringing on, he's the geofencing before, right? He's yeah. an expert in the field. That's what we want. Um, essentially, he was like, yeah, with a $3,500 budget, don't expect anything until like month two, right? Because it's really building that up, that stack effect. Once he utilized our list with it, he immediately saw a three times higher impression rate, three times higher Google search, et cetera. And after the first week of calling those two-week ads, mm-hmm. they may get two deals. Yeah. So it's already, it's almost like we're completing each other in a pretty yeah. nice middle ground. Well, and what you guys have done in a way is you guys have taken outbound data because that's what we do, right? We buy data and we, we outbound market to it. Yep. And we turn that outbound data into inbound marketing, right? So, you know, like we mail to them and they call us, but it's still like a lot of um, outbound effort. Sure. It doesn't feel like they called us until we marketed to them. Yeah. Here, they it feels like they marketed to us or they reached out to us unsolicited, even though they're totally solicited. Right. It that, feels a lot better, like for the homeowner, I think. Yeah. Because you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen this guy's stuff all the time. Yeah. Different vibes for sure. Completely <laughs> different vibes. And then dramatically improves the quality of the lead. 100%. Yes. And like, to be honest, I think when they engage after that cold call, it really shows like they're probably more serious mm-hmm. too, which I think is really important to note because we get so many people get tire kickers on like call and text, I think. Yeah. And the quality of the appointment is way lower on cold calling. Yeah. I mean, I think industry standard last I checked was like one out of every 55 cold call text I leads. closer to 80. Yeah. It just, just depends. But like mail is like one out of every eight. Mm-hmm. So way, way better. A lot less resources needed. Yeah. So... I definitely want to get to the audience questions before we do that. Um, you mentioned something funny earlier about um, the Grinch. <laughs> yes. Okay. So this doesn't, this mainly applies to AI driven lists where you know there's market share on that list, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's a concept I call perceived distress. So essentially how it works is let's say you have the Grinch and you have Cindy Lou Who. Now the Grinch has a judgment, pre-foreclosure, criminal felony, short-term loan, everything under the sun, right? Our system is definitely going to rank him higher versus Cindy Lou Who, who just has a lien. Mm-hmm. Even though our system ranks him higher, that lien could be all she needs to sell, hence mm-hmm. the perceived distress level. Because of that, in terms of cutting down lists, getting them to fit people's capability to get through the list, that efficiency rate, right? It's very important to go first off their buy box, then really targeting the areas that we're actually seeing transactions that are actually worth hitting Mm -hmm. to cut down the list that way while still capturing the most amount of market share we can. Yeah. And that's the whole concept behind perceived distress. I think too, like 
when people get so distressed that like, I mean, what, where are they going to go? Right. Like how are they going to get another place? Like if they have all of these issues, like they're not gonna be able to rent an apartment. Like they're not gonna be able to buy another house and stuff like that. So like at some point they become so distressed that like they physically can't sell, even though they probably want to. Unless there's a creative solution. Right. Um, and like, we have people who are like just going after like sub twos right now, because I think last, the last episode that you guys did with Tim Harridge, like two episodes ago, like he was talking about how much like equity is available, but also like how good of rates people have in the total U S mm-hmm. and like just targeting like those kinds of people, you know? And I think that doing that kind of targeting really gets around like the whole issue about them being too distressed as well. Yeah. Just having a lot of like arrows in your quiver if you will all right so um i see a lot of interesting questions here so right before we go to all the questions we're just going to quick uh video here and then we'll get to everyone's questions wholesalers what if you can make an extra fifty thousand dollars a month which is simple to do if you can close an extra two to three deals every single month right now you might be walking out of houses without signed contracts sellers are ghosting you or even when you do get a signed contract the seller wants to cancel before closing. And you're probably wondering, why is this happening? And it's because you're not following a sales process. And if you keep going the way you're going, you'll continue leaving two to three deals on the table every single month. After attending our live event, you'll quickly be equipped with all the tools to handle any objection thrown at you. People that attend our live events repeatedly tell us that they're closing an extra fifty dollars to $70,000 instantly. Here, you'll learn how to ask better questions that engage the sellers, the skills to build real rapport, and the ability to pinpoint exactly where the appointment went wrong. Come to my office in Phoenix, Arizona and spend two full days with me and my team where we discuss our entire sales process. Learn how to overcome, I need to think about it, the price is too low, and any hidden third-party decision makers. And if you attend this event, we're also including our disposition sales training, our perfect seller appointment checklist, and all of our scripts. Act now because our live events fill up quickly as we can only fit 20 people. If at the end of our event, you don't see how you can make an extra $50,000, I'll give you your money back. Go to salesdisruptors.com and sign up now because if you don't, you're going to keep leaving money on the table. FYI, we can only seat 20 people and we've already sold a bunch of seats. So don't get left behind in our shifting industry. All right, so we got Danny Fee in Vegas. I think this conversation is fire. Thank you, Danny. Uh, I was really looking forward to this. And I think it's really timely, you know, like there are a lot of people that suddenly became AI experts overnight. It kind of reminds me. Um, so I started in real estate in 2007, you know, and great time and, to start. yeah, great, <laughs> great, great time to start. Right. A lot of stress, a lot of, a lot of unnecessary scar tissue still from those times. <laughs> but in that time, you know, they were saying social media is the next thing and video is the next thing. And by the way, they went wrong around this time, right? From 2009 to 2011. The problem was not the message. The problem was the profits, right? Like every person that was trying to pitch me social media services and video services was a failed loan officer or a failed realtor, right? Yeah, they just jumped over on the bandwagon. Yeah, like, okay, so you couldn't sell houses and now you're going to try to sell me social media, right? So like it was very, very aggravating. And then about three months ago, maybe... When did, when did ChatGPT come, like, really hot? January. January. It was this year. Okay. And then 4.0 really pushed it to the next level. (laughs) So in January, everyone became an AI expert overnight, right? That's true. So (laughs) I really was looking forward to this conversation because, obviously, you guys have been geeking out on this for 
for some time now. So yeah, so when Danny says this conversation as far as absolutely, I've been looking forward to this conversation. And you know, we've had some conversations prior to this. Um, so a uh, question from Danny is, do you track burglaries? That's an interesting question. So we do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to like think of the right way to frame this. So criminal records specifically, and, and that's subsected out by misdemeanors and criminal felonies. So those are very different things. Um, for those who don't know, uh, misdemeanor would be like a traffic ticket at the mm. lowest level. Um, and then a criminal conviction can be very, very serious things mm. like arson, murder, things like that. Burglary. Burglary, yes. Um, so yes, we do track that. Um, and it's built into our models as well. But you're tracking on the person side. Yes. I think he's, his, his interests, because uh, he's talking about, you know, is that a oh, data point for selling? into. Yeah. Um, so those are built into our models. One of the things that we're doing pretty soon actually is actually segmenting every single list in our data points. And then like, obviously it's applied in our models, but it's going to be like, Hey, here's the score. And then here are the top 20 distress factors for every single list mm -hmm. and criminal convictions is one as well. Yeah. Um, and it's a very like effective list. I would say like, it's very niche, but if someone has a criminal felony, and they have a house, like they're going to jail, so like they gotta probably sell, right? Well, that's like we have the criminal list, so we have that in, in here. Like, so uh, we have, so I started a nonprofit organization only to pull data from Maricopa County. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have, I'm able to pull all the criminal convictions in Maricopa County. Interesting, right? I'm sorry, not convictions, trials. I can pull everyone that's going to mm. trial. Oh. Okay. Or, that's uh, even, yeah, it's even better. They're right? not convicted yet. But yeah, they're like, not convicted. They might be thinking, I need but some But they're money. going to trial. <laughs> yeah. So I have access to this data, right? And so, you know, this is, you're, you're having it like after, right? Like after they- Yeah, they've yes. been convicted on yeah. both of these. And that's for each of them respectively. So that's just, you know, fun fact for the day. <laughs> um, uh, Danny Fee also has a follow-up question is, uh, do you have any features that score to likely have an owner being open to creative financing from exiting? So we don't have a model for it, but we have a filtering system for it. Mm -hmm. um, so like interest rates is obviously a big thing and so is equity. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are going towards like a free and clear or high equity to overlay into their stack list, which is great. Mm -hmm. I think, I would say free and clear has the most volume of investor transactions, but you have to sort through a lot of hot garbage to get there. Yeah. Um, that's just how it is. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so we are tracking that based on like equity and based on like an interest rate if we've got it. Because mm -hmm. if they have like less than 10% equity, but they do want to sell, they're going to be a lot more open to that mm -hmm. because they have a great rate and they have not enough equity to sell completely to an investor. Right. And I think you've been, we've had some inquiries on this. Yes. You probably know more, but that's. Mm -hmm. No, that's the best way to say it. We don't really have a model built out for it, but we have certain indicators I think we can look towards to really capitalize off that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what you guys need, and I don't know how you guys do this with data, but to feed in your machine learning, is here are all the homeowners that sold their house, creative financing, and then you guys can filter that yeah. out. So we have done some digging into that. It's so. Well, that's because a, it's, it's hidden intentionally. Yeah, it's right? it's a whole other. It's a very hard hole. subset to find. <laughs> yeah, like and so you guys are gonna have to talk to Pace. It's like, hey, if you guys can submit to me, yeah, all the sub two deals. <laughs> well, 
all that training data, like bring them, bring it to us. Right. <laughs> then after you have the training data, then you could potentially a hundred percent figure that and out. Because that's all you're missing is the is the feeder data that says these are all the people sold sub two yeah. or creative. And realistically, having that training data is very important, but having that constant line to continue the training data so it yeah. can get better and better over time. Absolutely. You guys are gonna definitely have to talk to him. Um, and then you know I completely failed to mention this early before we went to the break. So uh, you guys. I have some questions here about uh, uh, how accurate is the data. So you guys are doing something I think is kind of obscene, right? In that you guys are giving away your data, your skip tracing, uh, or 5,000 records. Yes. Right. For the show. For the show. Yes. So for anyone that's watching the show right now, uh, if you guys were to go to the dataflick.com, yep. and you guys do disrupt 5,000, all caps, you know, Rami was very clear. Please. All caps. <laughs> Disrupt, D-I-S-R-U-P-T, 5,000, you guys can get 5,000 free skip trace records. Correct. Now, it's a coupon, one-time use. Yes. So if you submit a record list of 300, that's all you get. Yeah. So if you're going to do it, I would highly advise double-checking that it's at least 5,000 because you're going to be leaving money on the table if you don't do it. A very important thing to also add is these are 5,000 hits, Mm -hmm. not 5,000 records, right? Yeah. That hit rate on our data is at least generally about 92%, but mm-hmm. with formatting, things like that, it may be worth it to put in like 7,000, 8,000 to make sure you get the full value. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. There you go, right? Which again, I think it's kind of obscene that you guys are giving away 5,000 records, but if you guys want that, <laughs> disrupt 5,000 to get 5,000 free records. Uh, question from Omar. So just again, to answer his question, how accurate is skip tracing data? Get that question a lot. So the best way, well, you get this question probably a little yeah. bit more than so I Yeah, so accuracy is pretty hard to find, right? Hit rates, pretty easy, right? You gave us this many, on average, mm-hmm. 92%, depending on formatting, may go down to 80, whatever. Um, in terms of accuracy, that is super hard to track simply because you're relying so much on the person using the list, the call system, all of that. And it's almost an impossibility unless we're having some API feed all that data back into our system mm-hmm. constantly. And we started to implement like that kind of governance piece that we talked about earlier where it's like, hey, here's a list of all the verified sellers from our users. And these are people who they found through call and text. And obviously they use our skip tracing. So we can go back and trace like, hey, here's this number. Let's tag it as accurate. And we can, we're can we trying to build those systems of metrics to measure performance, mm-hmm. but it's a very long tail play. Yeah. Um, and how can you? So there's some illegal ways we could do it, but we're not trying to be illegal, right? <laughs> um, essentially with skip tracing, there's certain tiers to it. And the marketing tier, which everyone generally uses, you're only allowed to pull from certain databases. Mm-hmm. Then there's what's called restricted databases, which generally goes up in profile, like debt collection, police officers, law enforcement, et cetera. Government usage is yeah. probably the best way to put it. I started it. a debt collection company as well. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, debt collectors being part of that, you have access to a more restricted data set that mm-hmm. we're not allowed to use for marketing purposes. Mm-hmm. However, and this, once again, pretty borderline illegal, but if you ran just a sample of our list through that center to be able to see how many of these numbers actually do overlap, you'd be able to get a pretty good accuracy mm-hmm. rating. Yeah. So long answer. 
we can't give you an exact accuracy, <laughs> but no one really can. So if they tell you that, it's probably doing some stuff they right. shouldn't be doing. <laughs> yeah, or they've done just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cold calls themselves and have tracked all that to have a base level. Yeah. True. So the best thing to do is maybe take an existing data set, give Trace the 5,000 for free with you guys, and they just compare. And then give it a, give it a run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you're talking about illegal, right? Like, I asked you guys some questions earlier. You guys like, we can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, right? we could, but we can't. Yeah, right. <laughs> we very much. <laughs> and I was asking you, you know, specifically, like, could you, um, it would be helpful for me if you can give me a list of every homeowner whose credit score went from 720 to 650 in a week. <laughs> because if their credit score went from 720 to 650, it's only a matter of time. Either they stop paying the mortgage or it's a matter of time until their mortgage becomes a problem. Correct. Yes. Most of the time. Yeah. Right. It turns out it's illegal <laughs> <laughs> to pull that data. Yes. It is. Yeah. Once again, there's certain ways to model it and have indicators towards it, but mm -hmm. to target that specifically yeah. is not the most legal activity. Not the most around. legal, but man, I'd really love to have that data. <laughs> um, so let's see, follow-up question, or a different question from Marcio on YouTube. What type of motivated seller leads can data flick system detect? So do you guys track bankruptcies, option, auctions, high equities, liens, et cetera? Um, yeah. All of those that you just said, yes. Mm -hmm. So there's like 19 to 20 core ones. Yeah. The only two that we don't do are probate and divorce. Mm -hmm. However, we do do pre-probate. If you don't mm -hmm. know what that is, basically like it's the period before we enter probate court, mm -hmm. essentially. Pretty. Um, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> it's it's a question that comes up, right? What's the difference between pre-probate and probate? Okay. Yeah. Um, and the reason we don't do that is because in some states, it's very, very, very difficult to get. Like an example would be New York. If you wanted a probate or divorce list, you know, from that actual, like, to get that, you have to be a probate attorney or a divorce attorney. Mm -hmm. So, like, getting it is very, very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the other lists, Every list that you can imagine, we are tracking it. Sure. And that's from like some of our more like unique stuff, like criminal felonies. Short-term loan inquiries. Yes. So short-term loan is one of my favorites. It's mm -hmm. basically like if someone's trying to get a payday loan, mm -hmm. we see that, those inquiries. And if they're trying to get cash fast, most of the time they would be open to an mm -hmm. offer. So um, you guys have access to that data point, those data points? Yes, it's built into our models. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a really strong... Data point. I think it's yes. fire. <laughs> it's yeah. my favorite we one. Like <laughs> um, zombie properties is also one that I very much like. Mm -hmm. It's essentially if it's vacant and about to go into foreclosure. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe something we could talk about is um, an idea I've had, but I've never gone and executed, was just advertising at all the payday loan places. Right. Yeah. I love that idea. And like almost, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, with geofencing. I was about to say, yep. <laughs> we could just geofence all the payday loan places. We could do that. And then start doing targeted ads to that, followed by a mailer or a call yeah. or a text to push them in that direction after a two-week period, yeah. Right, I mean, 100%. We're, we're going to talk about, like, you know, geofencing. They went to a payday loan place. We got geofencing. We can retarget them. And then once they show up on the website, if they click on the ad, now we can retarget them forever on Facebook and everything else. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. And we can even tie that payday back to our system to see this user, their mailing address, are they on our list for a high likelihood to sell or not? So it's even an extra layer of governance yeah. to save on marketing. Yeah. 
I mean, we can geek out on this stuff all day. How <laughs> um, much time we got? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, uh, Russian Nico on IG. So, uh, DM geofencing pricing, even though relatively affordable, seems like a barrier to entry for most. However, my question is, what does a good Hulu ad look like? Okay, so if you were to create an ad on Hulu, what would it look like? Um, obviously, we don't. I can't just show you right off the bat. But if you, for those who are listening, just type in. Um, I would start with Open Door and OfferPad. Mm-hmm. Those are going to be top tier, like highest level. Mm-hmm. Those people, because I think they actually have their commercials on their YouTube. Um, just because they're running paid ads to the actual YouTube channel. So most of the time what people do is they'll like post the video on YouTube and then drive traffic towards it. Mm-hmm. So those will be two incredible examples. The other thing, I've seen a few ads on like webuyhouses.com. So maybe look up their YouTube channel. They'll have some. And are they ads? Yeah, those are some That good should be examples. a good start. Yeah. Yeah. And like these commercials at least with the initial testing, don't have to be the best commercials in the world by any means, right? Mm-hmm. Think of like, them as like virtual bandit signs. Like, don't overthink it. Yeah. Um, and like, I've seen about a thousand to fifteen hundred bucks for like a decent commercial. If you're trying to get crazy, like three to four thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, but like with our geofencing stuff, as far as like the pricing goes to do that, our users are going to have access to that for free. Um, and then we're probably going to make it a paid like standalone service as well for people who aren't yeah. current users. Uh, how long until that's rolled out? Um, that's the question. We, we're, yes. we're trying to figure out the right amount of testing before deploying it. And I think we're going to gradually like break it out to like more and more users every month. Mm-hmm. But I would say like 30 to 60 days. Yeah. So the biggest thing that we kind of talked about with this is it's a stacking effect, right? Mm-hmm. So month after month, you should expect more traction as your brand name builds all of that. So we want to give it adequate time to truly ramp up as much as it can so yeah. we can see those results. At least where it's like, here's what month one looked like, month two looked like, mm. just to have a yeah. baseline. Okay. I was going to say, because we're ready to test. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Once again, we'll talk after the yeah. show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess a, a follow-up question, right? Because, uh, you know, Omar's question about how accurate is, is the record. Uh, you guys uh, appear to be underpricing the market at $0.08, cents, right? How are you guys able to do it? Because like I typically see fourteen cents, and, and if you spend like a large amount, it gets down to ten cents. I mean, like I feel like our whole thing is we saw—I don't want to say price gouging is the right word—but for us, like we feel like we can produce a good product for eight cents that we're also happy with, mm-hmm. and we know people will get success with. And we're kind of taking the the mindset of like we want people to crush, so they obviously stay with us and get more data and things like that. Right. Um, and I think when people are charging like fifteen cents, twenty cents a hit, like some people do, like I don't know how you can be profitable, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Unless it's like detective level research, like one off pulls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's definitely a place for like that crazy I'm high like a caliber skip tracing, right? <laughs> yeah, like if you're right. trying to door knock these people and you got like a list of a hundred people, maybe do like the 20 cent hits that are like private investigation level. Right. Um, but we're just trying to be like an affordable option for people. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, uh, I was going to have another question after that. Dang it. Um, <laughs> so Ryle says he loves all this information. Uh, K M A G E on YouTube. Uh, what is the difference between data flick and authentic? Um, yes. You, I mean, you get that objection. I, I do get this question a lot. Um, obviously, I've never looked at Audantic's, like, data. 
to the degree of like knowing what their models are, knowing their raw data sources, because I just don't think they'd give it to me if I asked, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but so getting past the model part, which there's decent overlap with our model. In fact, I know some users who are using both us and Audantic. Mm -hmm. And one thing they love to do is stack us together in mail, mm -hmm. right? Because if it's on two completely independent ML AI models, it's most likely the right one to hit. Pretty strong list. Yes. <laughs> um, but then it gets into the structure, right? So for us right now, we're a six-month agreement paid monthly. Mm -hmm. And we include skip tracing into our list as well because we want to, once again, really encourage that multi-level marketing. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have any external lists, let's say you pull a prop stream or a batch list and you want to skip, if you're a user, we'll skip those at six cents a record. Mm -hmm. So even cheaper. Well, I yeah. will say to build off of that, there are some people always ask us like, hey, do we need to pull like other data points like mm -hmm. with your data? Mostly no, but you can get some really good lists from the county that like you physically cannot get anywhere else. Yeah. So an example would be like environmental liens or like water shut off. Water yeah. shut off is a great list. Um, so like it's actually the reason why I started that nonprofit to, to begin with. But what was nowhere. the not was so the water We shut need off? to talk more about this nonprofit after the show <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, but like overlaying those lists in um, and skip tracing them, that's something what we also do. Yeah. And like there are people who. I would say do that pretty regularly. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, so one question I, I've had in the past, right, because I wonder, you know, you're, you're charging, in your instance, $0.08 cents a record, other instances, you know, $0.15 cents a record, whatever. Is it a situation where you're pulling at once and then you're charging multiple times, right? Because, like, um, let's just say Maricopa County, where you said there's the third largest county in the mm -hmm. country, and every wholesaler seems to be here, it feels like, right? Like, because <laughs> this is, A, the guru capital of the world, and then on top of that, we have a bunch of people starting here. So if we were to skip trace a house up the street, 123 Main Street, right, the most popular address in, in the world, <laughs> uh, if I was to skip trace it, right, could you not house that record and then not have to pay for it again, I don't know, for a week, for a month, whatever? Yeah, so there's definitely time limits on it, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want the number to get old and stale. You want mm -hmm. to refresh that as often as you can. Yeah. But no, if two people back to back skip the same record. Right. Yeah. It's already housed in our system for sure. It's already housed in your system. So when someone's charging 15 cents a record and their cost is, I don't know, three cents. Yeah. I have no idea. It depends on if they're white labeling it or mm -hmm. if they're pulling it themselves. Yeah. So if they're pulling it themselves, they might have paid three cents for that record and they're selling it five times for 15 cents each. Multiple to multiple people. Multiple people. <laughs> yeah. Is that accurate uh, uh, hypothesis? Yes. Yeah. Straight. So it's interesting too. Like the I have no idea how other people do it. Um, mm -hmm. but like most of the industry is repurposing the same databases, mm -hmm. and um, well, the here what I hear all the time is like everyone's just reselling IDI. But anyway, continue. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I didn't want to say that. That's what most <laughs> people do. Um, so for us, we don't work with them at all. Uh, they're mm -hmm. not one of our sources. But we take those 6,000 sources, and we update that last reported date every month on all of our users' skip tracing data. Mm -hmm. So that's, like, I guess the big difference. Because, like, the numbers may be the same, but that last reported date could change a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, say, for an example, um, I've looked up, you know, family members, people we know, and, like, 
depending on like our source databases, someone may have an active phone number like two years ago, but that's still their number. Like mm -hmm. it just could be how it fall, like falls. But I've also seen examples where, say, we've had a um, you know list that we skip or sorry a record, and then a new source comes up or they change a source that they are actively using, and mm -hmm. now all of a sudden they go from a last reported date from 2020 to this month. So that completely changes the order of the skip tracing that we're providing people. Mm -hmm. And that's something I really haven't seen people do. And on top of that, using it almost as a filtration system as well. So what we found, and this was through initial testing, right? So right. every county, different. Don't shoot me if this yeah. isn't your calculation. <laughs> but um, once we started almost having caps on that last reported date, using it as an extra governance, extra filtration, mm -hmm we saw it remove about 50% of wrong numbers while mm -hmm. still kind of preserving the accuracy of the yeah. list, which is pretty massive in terms of, once again, the efficiency piece with cold calling. Right. I mean, back in the day, we were giving out like 10 numbers per mm -hmm. record, which it, looking back, is a nightmare. Yeah, and that's like pretty common practice for most like other skip tracing. So you're saying of the four numbers we get, up to the four numbers we get, all four of them were accurately reported at one point. In the last two years, they yeah. were reported. Interesting. Yeah, that's a huge part that I actually left out. <laughs> yeah, so because I, I know we talk about, you know, like at least one of them was, but you're saying all four at one point or another were reported yes. in the last two years. So a great example, um, I've looked at my my parents' address many times as mm -hmm. test sequences. So we used to have a home phone. Mm -hmm. That last reported date on there was the same year we cut the line off, yeah. which was like back in 2012. Right. It's almost so, like a credit report. Exactly. Yeah, it's last, refresh every last month. Last reported date. Um, and we run monthly updates on all source databases, yeah. um, which obviously changes the skip tracing a lot. Right. So, guys, you know, the, please fire away with your questions. I mean, I see a bunch of eyeballs in here, and uh, I, I think that to get access to this wealth of information is, is very, very uncommon. So, please uh, ask more questions here. And, like, you know, we can geek out all day, but I want to make sure <laughs> you guys get your questions answered. Um, so, uh, Ernesto on YouTube uh, – the phone numbers provided, are they scrubbed to see if the phone number is disconnected or connected? Yes. So we run through two other governance databases. Mm -hmm. So one of them is we remove business lines and like uh, VOIPs, mm -hmm. if you're Very familiar cool. with those. And so like we actually run those databases, or sorry, run those records through like Google as an example. And we have a system to detect if it's associated with a business line. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that's not good, so we remove them. Mm. The other aspect is we do remove the TCPA litigation risk records. So mm. it's like people who have filed lawsuits or could be seen as high risk to doing direct outreach to them. So we remove those, no questions asked. And then we also overlay an element of if you want DNC removed, you can choose to do that, but it's an option because I know yeah. some people are fearless out here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're going to not call the DNC... I don't know how many deals you can do. <laughs> I agree. I, uh, I've seen some insane stats on this where it's like to 50 to 60% of all skip trace numbers are on the DNC. Well, on top of that, unnamed user A, we will say, does <laughs> indeed reach out to the DNC and 60% of their deals come from cold calling and texting the DNC. Yeah, I but, don't know how you could run a profitable business yeah. opting out of a... But massive disclaimer, we do not condone doing that. Yes, 100%. <laughs> we have yeah. the system there so you can check the button and not have to worry about it. Or not check the button. I was <laughs> completely up to you, but once as, again. <laughs> as a business owner, you got to make a business decision. 
and I my I, my implication on which business decision you can make. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty strong. Uh, what's the approximate cost in geotargeting a payday loan type of insurance? Uh, and does VPN factor in IP targeting? So uh, someone, you know, we just had this idea, right? We're going to geofence payday loan companies, right? Yes. What's it going to cost to just geofence those? It heavily depends on the traffic to the payday places. <laughs> so that's the very interesting part to this. A, a good metric. So about 10,000 records cost about 3,500 to I mean, absolutely blanket these people. Mm -hmm. like, like they constantly. will see you everywhere, and yeah. and that's like also been tested. Of like, you need that thirty-five cents per month hit is per like record that you're reaching out to, is a good rule of thumb based on our metrics of testing thus far. Yeah. Um, and I want to say that you can actually tailor the campaign, like whatever the campaign is. So say we're going to payday loan mm -hmm. example. So that like, should still be 35 cents a hit. It doesn't really matter the targeting. Yeah. Um, this is completely different than what we've talked about so far. But is there a way um, for us to skip trace someone that shows up on our website? Because I know that was a service that was provided before by someone else. But they never rolled it out, I think, for legal reasons. So I show up on dataflick.com mm -hmm. could you skip trace me based off your ip address and that's the reason why i did the whole ip address geofencing thing before interesting so i don't know that question i could give you a good shot at it mm -hmm. but i just don't know 100 percent for certain because yeah. the ip address stuff is technically like a privacy falls under the privacy act stuff i think you can't do that mm -hmm. i think it's well we can do that but mm -hmm. we can't do that. Yes. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what it was. I think like because we were he was gonna roll it out and then it never rolled out. Yeah. I I know like um I mean if you're trying to do this at like the very granularly, you could actually probably export those IP addresses and have a VA take them. And then there are so many providers of IP address reverse lookup, mm -hmm. same technology as reverse skip tracing lookup, but you just type in the IP address, it'll spit out a person, take person skip trace manually probably mm -hmm. the best bet for that yeah and that's where i was going like within five five miles like this <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's that's not helpful that's at all. not good <laughs> yeah. yeah uh so guys keep firing away on your questions uh i'm going to ask some more questions over here um so you know you guys obviously when you started this there sounded like you were landscaping kind of like a little bit lost um uh, you were doing marketing but Still kind of <laughs> young and kind of figuring this out. Have you guys figured out your your purpose, your why? Why are you doing what you're doing? You wanna start? Uh, sure. So um, once again, for me, friends and family is massive, right? I have a massive family, and friends are like everything. They help me through the hard times when I was going through a lot, when just everything, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, taking care of them is massive 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 on my list um but even more than that is i love when my friends succeed so mm -hmm. for example i have a cousin logan hey logan um he's a chef and he's a sous chef right now working his way to be head chef doing phenomenal if i could help him open a restaurant one day like that is what keeps me going 180 mm -hmm. percent. or yeah. like my brother's always talked about he's a mechanical engineer i know mm -hmm. you have the engineering background yeah. too 
So he always just loves tinkering with things. Mm -hmm. If I could help fund an invention of his one day, something like that, like yeah. that's definitely my why. It's awesome. How about you? Um, I think it, the whole like entrepreneurial like journey kind of started with freedom because mm -hmm. I was like, I really like I was actually started in mortgage and was fired from a mortgage job. And I was like, I don't want to rely on other people ever again. So mm -hmm. that's like what started that journey. Um, and it started with freedom, but now I think like, as I've gotten like older, like more mature, it's turned into very similar to like him, like, uh, you know, supporting and like giving that level of freedom to like my future family is massive. Mm -hmm. Um, because like, I don't want, you know, them to feel like that they have to do something. I would much rather them do something that they like enjoy and want to do. Um, and like, I think there's a lot of ways that our like understanding and knowledge through tech could like make a pretty big impact like in other ways, like just around the world. So like, mm -hmm. you know, we have friends who are working on tech projects on the machine learning space that are tailored to strictly like, you know, detecting cancer as an example. So like my mom's a radiation therapist. Um, so she, you know, it deals a lot with that kind of stuff. And like, just there are so many use cases where machine learning can be used and like AI in general to like better the world. And even like through like green technology and stuff like that. And like that stuff's like super important to us. Yeah. Um, so I think it's kind of more, and it's very dynamic. Like it changes a lot, but. One thing we didn't talk about, um, you were in mortgages. Like what were you doing in mortgages? Yeah, so um, <laughs> the origin story kind of goes where I dropped out of college and then I went from that into, um, so my parents' neighbor, he was an executive at a mortgage company in Tennessee. Pretty large, not like, you know, institutional level, but they probably have about like 90 branches in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So decent size. And so I asked him like, hey, kind of a job. I want to learn real estate, but I don't want to go to school for it. And so he was like, we actually have a an appraisal, like risk management job mm -hmm. that's opening up, but you're going to have to like get an appraiser license. And I was like, all right, well, I just dropped out, nothing else to do. So mm -hmm. I just went and through that whole process, which is pretty like in depth. I don't know how much you or the viewers know, but like you basically have to do about eight weeks of like actual education and like take an exam and then hang your license under someone who's already an mm -hmm. appraiser and things like that. So I essentially did that, joined a mortgage company to like lead risk management for like the loans that we were actually like approving or not approving based mm -hmm. on the appraisal. And from there, like I learned a lot about underwriting real estate, which yeah. was great for like flips and stuff. Great experience. Um, then from there, I was like, need some sales experience. So in the same company, I got my mortgage license to be a loan originator and did that for like six months, hated it. And I was underneath someone. So I was technically an assistant cause it's the same kind of like, mm -hmm. um, like trajectory and like, we were pretty slow. So like I was fired from that job and then offered the appraisal risk job. And I was like back mm -hmm. and I was like, don't want to do that at all. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what started the, um, like the whole like only real estate thing. And that was when I was, uh, I just like house hacked as well yeah. and like had roommates. So I was living for free and just putting all the money I was making back in education. And from there, that was when I got into fortune builders, which I don't even think that they're, you know, an entity anymore. As yeah, far I heard as they just closed or something. Yeah. Um, so that's where I started. Um, it's crazy expensive, massive risk. And, uh, learned a lot really fast. And that was like the big community that I got connected with through Tiff and Josh. And then three months later, I was yeah. like, Rami, got to do this real estate. And thing. how did you guys get connected? 
Uh, we have known each other since sixth grade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Went to school in Alcoa, Tennessee. I got him to play soccer in eighth grade. That was the start. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So. Um, yeah, super humble beginnings. Like, I mean, through that, like, whole time of, like, learning, like, we were doing Instacart, DoorDash at night, like, you know, saving all of our money, living off of virtually nothing because we were, I had house hacks, so we were just doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going to Columbus was, like, the first job I had had since, like, I'd been in the mortgage space. And it was obviously just to, like, learn as much right. as I could. Um, and even then, like, I mean, we, you lived on the floor. Oh, yeah, I had no money. We had, like, um, 650-square-foot studio. If me a mattress, I would have <laughs> slept on his couch for three months, hands down. Like, <laughs> um, And, yeah, we were just super hungry. And, like, we, I think, like, a big thing for us is, like, we were so dedicated and focused on making this work that we were willing to do anything. Yeah. What's your guys' big struggle right now? Right now, um, so I would say like we're just trying to get to the point of like having a nice foundation of scaling. So like DataFlick yeah. itself, like we haven't spent anything on marketing and we've grown completely organically to this yeah. point. So like we're almost laying the foundation of like you know products that we think will really move the needle and mm-hmm. making sure that we have an, a nice foundation to like make really good hires and to expand more than we already have. Um, and yeah, like yeah. just making sure that that's done right is very complex. Like yeah. A very common thing you hear is don't work in your business, work on your business, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think right now we are definitely working on the business. Our whole goal is to keep this growing as much as we can, but there's still things that we're definitely in mm-hmm. in the business at the moment as well. Yeah. Um, and what are you guys' superpower? Should we go first? Is this like me about mine or me about his? It's easier <laughs> if you guys talk about each other's. All right. Uh, oh, gosh. That's a hard question. So for Rami, I think he, I mean, we talked a lot about empathy here. So, like, Rami's ability to work with other people, whether it be, like, another, like, employee or, like, me or just, like, our clients or users or whomever, his just conviction to make sure that they do well and, like, the level of care that he has mm-hmm. is incredible. And his ability to, like, just care for people and, like, be a really good friend or, like, a really good business partner or a great, like, software to a user, mm-hmm. um, I think is, like, how, why we're here. Um, yeah. Like, we've made it this far because <laughs> of that level of conviction that he's had mm-hmm. through this whole process, I think. Yeah. Well, what is Ty's superpower? Um I would say ties is honestly the ability to keep pushing us forward. Like I know I definitely have those moments where I'm like, oh, we should do this, this, this. Mm-hmm. But I always have that voice in the back of my brain like, oh, but look at the bank account. Oh, look at this. Look at that. Uh, Ty is just phenomenal at painting the picture of what's to come with the company. Like, hey, what if we tied this in? What if we add this integration here? And like there's a lot of big things that we didn't talk about on this show because we're just not there yet mm-hmm. that. I know will be included in the future because yeah. he's constantly pushing us. Yeah. So I would say constantly looking out for the future and guiding us on that path. Yeah. It's probably Seeing his superpower. Seeing what's possible. hundred percent. Gotcha. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, which failure did you guys learn the most from? So many. Um, oh, man, it's gotta be hiring. So like for us, we have gone through, 
you know, hired and fired, I don't want to say like dozens, but probably like 15 like different people at least in the last like three years that I was so sure were great and they just weren't. So like really honing in on like what we needed and a lot of that like failure I think is like on me for not really building the systems right. And like when I've looked back on it in the past, like these people were almost set up for failure. Mm -hmm. So I think like focusing on hiring in general and like learning some really hard lessons on that front was... So I'd say it's a mix though, right? Because we were also, once again, pretty bootstrapped back then. Like we are at a point where we were trying to make this amazing system happen with not a lot of like amazing resources, resources yeah. <laughs> to create. So I think a lot of that comes down to... Sure, we, were, we definitely learned a ton. We weren't nearly as educated as we should have been on that hiring process or what the results should look like as much but a big part was the pressure of where we were yeah. and i think that got to us i want to say got to us but made us make some poor decisions on that yeah. front things were probably more rushed than they needed to be i think yeah and like just slowing down having that consistency like if we had the piece. dev team we had now and just decide to build that out at the very beginning it'd be a very different ball game right now, right but you know you go back to hiring um you know ren is someone that you know obviously we all know pretty well um, he actually has like, you know, part of our sales leadership training is like how to effectively identify and, and keep the best people. Cause that's one of the hardest things, right? <laughs> is like, how do we truly figure out if this guy is good or not? Cause I'm like you, everyone I've hired, I thought was going to be amazing. You're like banger. <laughs> I, I know they'll be awesome. This is, <laughs> I hit another grand slam. Yeah, that's exactly. How I and am. then it turns out they're not all grand slams. No, <laughs> yeah, some of them are strikeouts. Um, so a uh, question here from Paul, how can I uh, subscribe or, or check us out again, go to dataflick.com disrupt 5,000 all caps and you can demo uh, all this. Um, oh, he said he just ran it. Uh, yeah. Dataflick is doing better. Oh, cool. So you already, already did it. <laughs> That's pretty quick. Awesome. Nice. <laughs> did he uh, do all 5,000 hits? <laughs> uh, I don't know, but that was pretty quick. Uh, in a matter of minutes. Um, perfect. So I want you guys to uh, think about some last thoughts uh, you guys want to leave the listeners with. Uh, I'm going to make a couple of quick announcements, uh, and then we'll, we'll go with that. So, uh, guys, you know, I personally see an opportunity in this market. I'm excited to seize the moment. I actually had some pretty exciting conversations I was sharing with you earlier uh, about, you know, some opportunities and how we might be able to capitalize on it. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you guys have capital and you don't know where to get started, you can invest with us. Or if you have killer deals that you need help to close on, you can partner with us. Go to uh, teamwithsteve.com, and maybe we can do business together. And if you guys got value today, you know, I hope you guys did because I got a ton of value today. Uh, like, subscribe, share, and comment. And then tune in next week. We got Jack Bosch. He is the land guy uh, of all the people. I think he's the one that has uh, been doing it the longest and, and, and knows the most. So what are some last thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? I'll start with you, Rami. Um, the biggest thing is let the data tell the story, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like too many people go off of, oh, I heard Leans was really good today, or I heard this or that. Um, even right now, we're building out what we're calling kind of a market map, where even if you're not using our data, we can look in your county and say, yeah, in your county, there were 7,500 Leans, and from those 7,500, 500 of them sold to an investor mm -hmm. in the past three months, or just an example, right? Yeah. But 
let the data do the talking is the main thing. Follow your KPIs, actually track everything. Just let, trust the data. Yeah. Trust the data. And that's the hard part. That really is. Because <laughs> we want to go against that. We want to go with our gut. But the data is screaming at you. 100%. Go with the data. Um. So we talked a lot about this before uh, the show and everything, but I think like the biggest testament to like what led to our success was just being really consistent and focused. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that if you are like, I want to do this business, even if it's not real estate, whatever it is, if you are completely dedicated and like consistent and focused on that, it's going to happen. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of time. And there's so many times where we like, we almost quit. I mean, we we're like that close. And I'm obviously very thankful we didn't, but I think it's just like enlightening people that that's pretty normal. Mm -hmm. And you have to remember to just be consistent and focused on one thing. Cause obviously I, my brain never stops. I'm always right. calling. I'm like, hey, what, can we do this? Probably shouldn't do it, but <laughs> I'm the most guilty of that. But I think that's something that we've learned over the years is insanely important. And yeah. I wish I had like had more focus like earlier in my life, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it's guilty. A lot of us are guilty, especially, you know, if you're uh, an entrepreneur, right? So, you know, we talk about uh, the importance of focus and how easy it is to get distracted. The other thing, too, you talk about consistent. And that's what, the one thing I put in my message, right? You know, if you'll take consistent action. Love and um, <laughs> I, I, I did a presentation a few weeks ago, and I, I shared the asterisk, right? We all talk about I'll do whatever it takes. Like, how many of us say I'll do whatever it takes? But there's an asterisk there because I'll do whatever it takes and the asterisk underneath that is except for being consistent. Like that's the one thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'll do whatever it takes to be, to be successful, except for being consistent. <laughs> Cause I think a lot of us kind of let ourselves off the hook mm -hmm. with the consistency component. hundred percent, man. Yeah. Um, if someone wants to get a hold of you guys, how, how should they do that? Um, I believe that there are some links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, one is for an investor demo if that interests you. And obviously the skip tracing coupon, make sure to use that. But, I think um, if you just follow the links that should be in the show notes, that yeah. is probably the best way. Schedule um, a call with me. Love to talk to you. Um, I, go, yeah, I see it right here. Info at Dataflick is also like the generic email that people just send when they have inquiries or like questions and things like that. But um, yeah. So. All right. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you guys for watching. We'll see you guys next week.